we get back into the book of James this week, James has been calling us to grow in our faith. Growth is a very interesting thing, right? We see the little ones, and I mean, they're full of joy, and they're stumbling around, and we just think it's so cute. But when we're older and we're stumbling around, it's not so cute, is it? Seems like everyone, for some reason, and I I don't want to make you feel bad, okay? That's not my point for saying this, but everyone thinks that they are mature in the faith when they are a Christian. It seems like the longer we're around church, we just automatically assume that we're mature. That is until we meet somebody who really is mature, and we go, wow, I wish I had their faith. One step at a time. That's what it takes to gain their faith. One step at a time. It's not a light switch. James is saying, here is what a mature Christian looks like. So how do you measure up? The first three chapters, he's kind of laid it out for us, chapter one. Um, how, to, how do mature Christians rejoice in the middle of tribulation? And that's a difficult one when, when things are hard. It makes us look more like Christ. And then he talked about how we should look out for temptation and the, and the ways of the devil because he will tempt us along the path no matter where we are. My younger years, I was tempted by certain things. My older years, I'm not so tempted by those things. I have other temptations now. So as we mature, the devil changes the way he tempts us. Chapter 2 dealt with the mature Christian's heart. Do we have a love for those that are disadvantaged? For those that are downtrodden? For those that need a little help? How selfish are we? Because it's hard to be mature and be selfish. Have you ever worked with a really selfish person? Would you ever call them mature? (laughs) No, you wouldn't. Then chapter 3, he talked about the beginning of chapter 3, a mature Christian has power over their tongues. And this can be a difficult one uh, for a lot of people uh, to to control that, to to think before we speak, to, uh, as the scriptures say, uh, slow to uh, slow to speak and, and quick to listen. But today we're going to be talking about wisdom. But, you know, before I, I, I want to get into it, I want to mention again, wisdom is not the same as intelligence. I know a lot of intelligent people. I used to live up in Livermore, Lawrence Livermore National Lab. There's more doctorates per capita up there, or, or there was at that time, um, than many places in the United States. Uh, and, and I can tell you, there's a lot of intelligence up there, and sometimes common sense is out the window, okay? And certainly wisdom was not there on some occasions. I'm not saying... If you're really intelligent, you can't be wise. I'm just saying they're two separate uh, things, two separate thoughts, because wisdom is not the same as intelligence. Intelligence is accumulation of that information, of whatever subject matter it is in, in life, accumula- accumulation of that, where wisdom is the proper application of that information. Now, I can be really intelligent about electrical things, does that mean I properly apply those, that intelligence to electrical things? No, you can get yourself in trouble. I mean, we're thankful that our air conditioner was fixed fairly easily. The guy comes down from looking at the 15-ton unit, comes down, and he goes, yeah, a whole bunch of wires were melted together. 
okay and the whole thing didn't blow up? You know, I mean, I, that's what went through my mind, and I was very thankful that, uh, for that. But knowing something and applying something is two different things. You can be an intelligent fool. Now, we're not supposed to go around calling each other the fools. The Bible talks about that. But I'm just saying you can be an intelligent fool. Head knowledge is good for the Christian. But applying it to our everyday lives is the key. That's what's better. Like James says in chapter 1, verse 22, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. My kids can know the rules around the house, but unless they apply it to their own lives, they're going to get in trouble. We have to apply what we learn. Jesus also said in Matthew eleven nineteen, 19, wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Our actions prove whether we are wise or not. Well, let's get into it. Uh, verse 13 of James 3 says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. From where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. James is telling us the world contains two types of wisdom, and they come from two different places. One comes from heaven above, and that's the wisdom of God. And the other is an earthly wisdom, and, that, and, and Satan has dominion over the earth. So we, we use the term God of the earth, but I hate to use that term God of the earth because he's not really a God. He's a fallen angel, okay? But he has dominion over the earth, and that's where earthly wisdom comes from. It's not godly. James says that wisdom comes from above is what? True. He, in verse 14, he says that. It's the opposite of the world's wisdom. He calls it pure, down in verse 17. It's the wisdom that comes from information. Then God's wisdom is based on his word. So you have informational wisdom, and then you have wisdom that comes from his writing, his word, which is blessed by the Holy Spirit and can be applied to our lives for godly things. It's a divine information. It comes from above. Now, there's several different words used for this. We could use the word law. Okay, that's the written word back in Deuteronomy. That's the wisdom that God gave them was the law. Statutes, precepts, commands, the fear of the Lord, okay, that's talking about the wisdom of the Lord, uh, knowing the, uh, what, uh, what the Lord wants and applying that, decrees and the word. All of these things are used to describe God's word. In Psalms 19, verse 7, it says, the, Lord, uh, the law of the Lord is perfect. In other words, the wisdom of the uh, Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy. Making wise is simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to its eyes or to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all the, of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold. 
There are much more, or much uh, than much pure gold. They're sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. I love that. You're warned that you'll get a great reward in keeping these things. When a Christian reads and studies and then applies these things to their life, they become wise. Just as Jesus said in Matthew 7, Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house upon the rock. And we all know the rest of the verses about, you know, building on sand and, it, you know, no foundation. So, so he is our foundation. We need to apply the word of God after we gain the knowledge of it. If we don't apply it, then we are the fool building upon the sand. You know, there's a lot of people who come to church who listen, agree, leave, and never apply something to their lives. James would question their faith. He would say, do they have any? The word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. That is our goal. God dwelling among us and in us and becoming flesh in my life. That is a life that would be better because of the word of God. Now, the opposite is Satan's lies, humanistic thought at the core. Man and man's desire is the core of the humanistic belief system. This is what Paul calls in 1 Corinthians 1.20, the wisdom of the world. James says it's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. He says this because it comes from the leader of this world, Satan himself. He has filled the world with his lies. I believe, you know, I keep saying this, common sense has left the world, wouldn't you say? At least that's my view. I mean, there's certain things that you just, you, you shake your head. I mean, at school, five and six-year-olds will get in trouble if they hug or kiss each other. Now, if it's overly too much, then it needs to be dealt with. But they'll get in trouble if one kid comes up and kisses another kid or holds their hand or something like that. They separate and get in trouble. I mean, it, they'll have meetings with parents sometimes. Yet, teenagers, you can't hardly kick them out of school if they're causing problems. I mean, it's, it's like you just scratch your head and, and you just go... One should be common sense, and so should the other. One, you should say, hey, Johnny, little Johnny, stop doing that. We don't do that, okay? Instead of having to send them down the principal's office or whatever, you know. The other ones, you should be like, okay, if you keep acting like that, you're going to be out of here. I mean, completely out of here. But common sense has left this world, and it's filled with Satan's lies, that we have to handle things in a different way. You know, uh, it's based on lies. The control of the world is in the devil's hand, and the, and, the Lord, and the Lord is allowing this. But God is still in charge of the universe, and Jesus paid for our sins. And one day, Jesus will come back, and he will banish Satan, and the ways of Satan will be gone, and, and Jesus will reign again. But the people have been blinded of the truth, and they start to believe the lies of Satan. God's wisdom leads to godly living. Satan's wisdom leads to ungodly living. I don't know how much plainer I could make that. God's ways leads to godly living. 
Satan's ways leads to the opposite of God, ungodly living. It rejects the word of God. It's completely humanistic in the approach to life. Man is God and answers to no one but himself. Have you heard that thought? It's espoused everywhere. Sometimes it's said outright, and other times it's stuff like, oh yeah, you know those religious people, they just need their crutch. They just need to hang on to something. And they're basically saying, I'm in control of my own life, which makes me the God. And that is a sad thing. Humanism has become a religion. You can do whatever you want. There are no rules. In fact, the scriptures say, uh, uh, the scriptures said it, uh, I think, oh, I forgot exactly where it says it, but it, it said it that everyone was doing right in their own eyes. Do we see that today? There are no basic rules anymore. Everyone is doing right in their own eyes. The man-centered God complex will reach a crescendo before Christ comes back. It all started in the Garden of Eden. Surely, surely if you eat from that, you're not going to die. You'll really become like God. It's really encapsulated in, in Hinduism. In fact, uh, most of the New Age movement in America is based in Hinduism. We are all God. Uh, we, you know, uh, you, you just forgot that you were God. You just need to be enlightened now to know that you are a God. And how sad is that? Because you are not. This is the lie of the devil. And there will be the lie, the big lie that the Bible talks about. The one lie that is promoted by the Antichrist himself, and it's this. We are all gods. This is where the wisdom of the world comes from. And it's blinding the people from the word of God, where they will not listen to the truth of right is right and wrong is wrong because they become blinded. Paul says, that, uh, says don't argue with people like this. I mean, doesn't it get your goat when you just want to argue? I mean, you just... Man, there's so many times I just shake my head and I'm thinking, I should say this. No, 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 don't, no, no. Oh, I should say that. No, 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 don't say that. There's lots of things that are going on in my head that I want to say that I just have to hold back because God says we need to be patient. We need to be humble. Pray that God would get beyond the blinders that people have. Discuss, talk, but don't argue because arguing doesn't get you anywhere. In fact, it'll get you a point where people actually hate you for what you're trying to say. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. In other words, those who are leading in the ways of Satan, those who are going away from God. But to us who are being saved, it is the power, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligent of the intelligent I will frustrate. Do you see frustration of, of intelligent people? I see it all the time on news. Very intelligent people just frustrated. Why don't they get this? Why don't they understand that? And a lot of times it's, it's geared toward Christians and stuff. But eventually God will end this nonsense. They will stand in front of God, who they say doesn't exist because they're so intelligent. They say God doesn't exist. They're going to have to stand in front of that God and answer for, their, their answer for themselves. 
God is giving everyone a chance, everyone enough understanding where if you want, you can exercise your faith if you want. But many have closed themselves off to that truth, and they will not exercise that. They do not want to hear about God at all. Bunch of bunk, for, according to them. Goes on in verse 14 and says, But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. The Greek for the phrase bitter envy is not just coveting. It's not just, oh, I would really like to have that. You know, I mean, Fred's got a boat. I could sit here and go, oh, you know, covet. Oh, I really want that boat. But this bitter envy is a whole different concept. The bitter envy here is, I'm going to get that boat and I'm going to destroy Fred in the process so I can get that boat. You see the concept here? That's what the Greek is saying here. This bitter envy, it's, it's that covetedness to the point of you hate somebody and you want to destroy them because of it. We see this on both sides of politics, okay? You see this on the conservative side, you see this on the liberal side, where it's I hate the other side and I have to destroy them. And how wrong is that? Completely wrong. God is not a Republican. I hate to give some of you heart attacks. God is not a Democrat, okay? God is not an independent. God is not about politics. He's about saving people. He's about them living a godly life. It's not about politics. We need to be not self-seeking. We need to be not about saying, I want to be blessed, and I don't want you to be blessed. These are signs of carnality. Verse 15, such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Having only this view in life is a very earthly view. No thought of the future, no thought of the future legacy you would leave for your family. What a legacy it would be for you to pass on God, Christ, saving grace to the next generation. That's a legacy. Not how much money you have. Not how much money you hand down to your kids. The legacy you want to leave is God. That's the, where you should be. But so many people are, are focused on the here and now. Our earthly lives are temporal. They are not, uh, they're temporary. They are not uh, uh, it goes on beyond this. This is not our home. There's more to this life than this. There's more to this life than unspiritual things. Uh, you know, we're talking about being born again here. You were not born physically in this, or you were born physically in this world, but you have to be born of the Holy Spirit to be with God in the end. We are dead spiritually until we invite the Spirit into our lives. That's why he's saying it's unspiritual. Demonic is inspired by Satan. 1 Timothy 4.1 says, The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will, will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciousness has been seared as a hot iron. 
Now, you've all seen the movie where, where the guy is, is hurting, he's bleeding or whatever, and somebody tries to distract him, and they take something that's been in the fire in the hot iron, and they, you know, they, they put it on him, and what it does, it sears it. it, it I know, it's it, a terrible example, I know. Should I talk about searing steak instead, you know? Okay, let's describe how we get the steak. No, 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 okay. But, you know, you sear it. You, you stop it from the bleeding. You, you, you know, it... it for lack of a, oh man, I'm digging myself in here. It melts it all together, like the wires, okay? On the AC, it was melted all together. It's no longer bleeding. It's no longer allowing things. That is what you do with a hot iron. And, and, and Satan has done that to the consciousness of so many people. Satan's lies have always been in the world. And the church has been a place for truth. The church has been a place that, that people could come to and hear about God and it's been preserved. But in the last days, Satan will, you know, his lies will make inroads into the church. They will take hold and new religion will take over. You know what I think the new religion right now is at least, and I'm sure it'll morph as we get closer to the end times, but right now politics is the new religion as far as I'm concerned. There's deep-seated belief in, in politics, and it's all about politics and how sad it is. But God's word is God's word. Don't fall for new religions, new thoughts. Don't fall for man's thoughts. God's word is where you'll find the truth. In fact, it goes in verse 16, it says, From where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. Have we seen any disorder in this world? <laughs> yeah. See, God is not the God of confusion, the word says. Confusion comes from the devil. Earlier, James talks about the tongue and controlling it. A lot of the confusion in this world is why? Because people are out there, blah, 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 and they just confuse everything, don't they? Oh, man. Satan uses it to preach his lies to the world, and we see it being spread day in and day out. Strange ideologies, strange doctrines. You get communism, you have Islam, you get re religious teachings that are of the devil and not from the Bible, and it leads to chaos and confusion, and we have to watch out for it. I mean, we would all say it's evil to, to strap a bomb onto yourself and walk into a crowded place and set it off. Wouldn't we all say that? All the kids are gone, so I can say, talk about this, you know. We would all say that is evil. And yet, there's a thought pattern that if I do this, not that I would, but I'm just saying if I do this, then I would go to paradise and have women waiting for me. How? That's what Islam teaches. 72 virgins waiting in paradise if I blow myself up for, for, uh, for, for their God's cause. That's just evil. That is not of God. That is not truth. That is not good. Would anyone say that that is good? That's the ways of the devil. This is a contrast to the beauty of God that is evident in the world sometimes. And we catch glimpses of it when God is in control and when God's doing certain things. We see the beauty of God. But, but the opposite of that is Satan to its core. It's the evilness of this world. Now that we've talked about worldly wisdom, where does or what type of wisdom comes from God? Well, verse 17. 
But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure. Peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Let's look at some of these words. Purity, or pure. It's a purity that comes from, from God when we receive the Holy Spirit in our life. We get a new heart. That's the heart of God. We start seeing things a little differently. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are they pure in heart, for they will see God. It's our attitude and our motives. They become pure. And then, the, then he says, peace-loving. This is not promoting conflict. I mean, we all like to promote conflict every now and then, don't we? A little jab here, a little jab there. What's your motive behind it? I mean, you know, we go fishing with the guys and stuff. We kind of rag on each other. But we're not trying to do it to, to tear each other down. We're not trying to do it to drown each other on the lake. We're just having a little fun. There's a difference between the two. And we need to understand that. But when you start seeing yourself cross the line, you're going, I'm going to, oh, I'm going to nail this one. I'm going to say this. That'll really get them. You know you've crossed that line. You're not peace-loving. Matthew 5, 5.9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. These really are the attributes of God. Jesus is the prince of peace. God wants peace with man and provided a way for us to have peace with him. And that's accepting that he is God. Accepting that he is control of our lives. And now we can turn around and offer that peace to other people once we become a child of his. Considerate and submissive. You know, it's knowing how to forgive when we have the right to condemn. I like the term sweet reasonableness. Just being reasonable about it. Just going, you know what? I have every right to be upset about this one. But I'm going to give God's grace to it. It's a sweet reasonableness there. Consider it. And submissive, that submissive of, I'm right, but I don't have to act like that. That's that submissiveness. Full of mercy and good fruit. Mercy is, mercy is, is giving someone or, 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 or is getting what you don't deserve or giving somebody something that they don't deserve. They've royally screwed up, but you're going to have mercy on them and you're going to let them have this good thing anyway. Or you're not going to give them the bad thing. You know what I mean? Um, but but these, are, these are good fruit. The fruit of the Spirit. It's the ultimate attributes of God. His character. Galatians 5, and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. You, you notice it doesn't say fruits. It's all one thing. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness gentleness and self-control against such things there is no law paul is saying you can't pass laws to get people to act this way you can tell someone be kind you can even lay it down in your law in our house we're kind to each other can you make them be kind to each other no. In fact, if you start talking like that, you're kind of lost it you know, a little bit. you got to rework it, you know? No way. I mean, this has to come from within. Impartial. We know what this means, being, being fair. 
But the Greek goes beyond that. It means not judging a person's heart or motive. Think about that for a second. It's not just being fair. It's like going beyond that, going, I'm not even going to address whether their motive is pure or not. The mature Christian takes things at face value. And then sincere, sincere in the Greek, it's not putting on a mask, not giving a performance, being transparent, honest, and upright, not trying to deceive. He goes on and says in verse 18, peacemakers who sow in peace reap or harvest of righteousness. That is great. That just shows right there God's blessing. When we act like God in this world, we will reap a harvest of righteousness. A mature person in the faith will start to produce evidence in their life, and that is the fruit of the Spirit, along with the peace of God. Romans 6.22 says, But now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. Now let me ask you a question. Do you feel holy? I think that's one of the problems. We associate ourselves with sin so much that we forget that we're becoming holy as we mature in God. That doesn't mean we just walk around, oh, I'm, ho- I'm holy Alan. You know. No, we don't act like that. But we start to become, when we act like God, there's a little bit of holiness coming out of us, and we need to remember that and not just focus on the negative. Living for God with peace in our hearts. Philippians 1.11 says, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And I think this is what James has been getting at a lot through this book, and we've talked about it several times. Everything that we do is for the glory and praise to God, the glory of God. That is so key. If we can get that thought down in our lives, it is what we're doing on a daily basis. Is it for the glory of God? When we deal with our coworkers, is it for the glory of God, even though they irritate the heck out of us? As we deal with the person down at the cashier, you know, we go down to Target or go to another place, and they mess it up. Our reaction, is it for the glory of God? When we talk to our kids, is it for the glory of God? As we live our everyday lives, are we doing it for the glory of God? And I don't mean perfection. Because we all, we all mess up. I'm talking about the little things we do reflect on what we believe. To make sound decisions that reflect what we believe. Now, in contrast to the, to, to the result of walking with the Spirit of God, James continues this line into chapter 4. And uh, we're, we'll go through it kind of quickly a little bit, and we'll hit it next week. But James continues this thought that when, when Christians are still carnal, are still immature, he's not saying, oh, every Christian is mature. He's imploring these Jewish Christians that he's mainly writing to, you need to mature in your life. Stop being carnal because it produces fights. It produces conflicts. You have internal conflict, and you have external conflict. He goes on in chapter 4, 
What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Some Christians seem to fight a lot. And sometimes it really creeps into the church. When it does, we have to figure out if those that are causing the conflict are really believers. We have to start looking at their lives. And, and this is not judging somebody, you go to hell. But it's saying, okay, are they living their life for God? Are they not living for their life for God? And are, are they bringing that into the church? Are they pretenders? And ultimately, that is up to God. But if someone is constantly the cause of conflict in the church, you have to address it. Because eventually, God will address it and root the stuff out. Or the church becomes ineffective completely. Now, this is not to say that they cannot be, you know, there cannot be disagreements in the church. There's always going to be that. If you disagree with one another, you deal with it. You disagree with me, we work through it. But we shouldn't let something just sit there and simmer and simmer and bubble and bubble. And then somebody comes along and dips something in it and they start to eat it. And what happens? They get burned. We don't want people getting burned by coming to church. We don't let things simmer. Now, at the same time, we don't go around judging every little thing. You know what I'm talking about? Nitpicking every little thing, because that's not good either. The grace of God has to rule in our hearts, and that's what prevents conflict. If strife is in you constantly, then you need to get right with God and let the peace rule in you. In 1 Corinthians 3, it says, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, more infants, uh, mere infants of Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you were still not ready. You were still worldly. You notice he doesn't say, you're no longer a part of Christ. He just says, you're, you're immature and you're worldly. For since there's jealousy and quarreling among you, you are, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? Paul was talking to Christians, but those who were immature, and he's encouraging them to mature. We need to mature, we need to read, we need to learn, and we need to produce fruit in our lives. Now, true Christians can still be carnal, they can still be self-seeking, but we need God overtaking that. In fact, in, in chapter 4, verse 2, he goes on and says, you desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you do not ask. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives. That you may spend it, spend what you get on your own pleasures. When James says you kill, I don't think he's being literal. But I think he's talking about reputations. Many reputations have been murdered, haven't they? by the tongue that we talked about several weeks ago, by members of the church tearing down other members of the church. We have to be careful of that. Now, we all have personalities, right? And you all agree that my personality is the best and greatest, right? Yeah. Now, don't raise your hand on this, but I've probably rubbed a lot of people wrong, you know, every now and then. We all have personalities. Don't get me wrong. 
There's people that have irritated me in the church, but we still love each other. And that's where it has to be that foundation, not tearing each other down. This Greek word means extreme hatred that produces wrongful actions. We have to be careful of hate. When we cannot receive our goals, when we destroy those in our paths, we have to think, are we Christ-like? Or am I being immature? Because immature Christians will be in the driver's seat trying to be in control. They will want control all the time, saying, I got this, instead of saying, Lord, help me out here, instead of saying, Lord, I need, I need you, because we need to let go and allow him to lead. We need to start trusting him. You know, I, you, you see, in fact, uh, Sam over at Prosperity Baptist, Pastor Sam put this up on their, their marquee, you know, they have one of those things with the letters. He says, if God is your co-pilot, switch seats, you know, and we've all heard that kind of saying and stuff, and it, it's so true. You know, God is my co-pilot, and God's going, yeah, and I'm tired of sitting in the passenger seat. Let me drive, you know? But we've become so self-sufficient that we forget what God wants, and we forget to ask God what he thinks. And this leads to a lot of struggle, leads to warfare in the church, leads to warfare in the family, and it leads to warfare in the marriages, and they have to lie and scheme to get what we want. The more we are working in the flesh, the more we try to satisfy our own needs. I love the fact that, that both of my kids look to other people's needs. And it's an innate thing. I mean, it's a godly thing. I, I tell you, I, it's not always taught for me. I mean, I think about other people, but not always. But, you know, we're going swimming, and uh, they're doing swim lessons down at the city and all that. And, and my son forgot his goggles. Uh, they were at a friend's house swimming, and they forgot the goggles. And he looks in the back of the car. We just got back from a trip, so luckily we had a pair in there. And he had two pair, one really good pair and one pair that was kind of messed up. And he gave the good pair to his friend because he, was, because he knew his friend doesn't like it if water gets in his eyes and then he doesn't have a good... He's thinking about other people. That's a good thing. That's the type of things that are of God. Thinking about others. Not putting ourselves first. But the more we work in the flesh, the more we try to satisfy our own needs through our own strength. And it's exhausting, isn't it? It's not the work of the Spirit. This leads to anger leads to defensiveness, this internal battle within ourselves that ultimately leads to external actions, which hurt. See, the devil has got our society wound so tight that it has been leading to destruction. Shootings are way up. We're seeing looting all over. I mean, we, you know, we've all seen the video of the guy going into San Francisco Walgreens, right, or one of those. And, I mean, they're shutting down Walgreens right and left in certain areas because people are just walking in with trash bags and filling it up and leaving. There was a guy who, uh, I think it was CVS, that, uh, uh, and this is where they tell those that are workers, just if they're stealing, just leave them alone. He tried to stop somebody from stealing stuff, and they pulled out a gun and shot and killed the employee that's making probably $14, $15 an hour. 
Our society is so wound tight from the things of Satan. Strife is out of control. We're seeing kids shoot, you know, other people in, in road rage accidents. And I say kids, I'm thinking, I'm 50 now, so anybody under 30 is a kid. I mean, just, I mean, some of you guys understand. I'm just a kid to some of you, you know what I'm saying. So, uh, you know, but make no mistake here. It is the work of the one who is in charge of the earth, and that is Satan himself. Satan loves what's happening right now in the world. He loves it. More than ever, we need the peace of God. He is the only thing that can heal people. James is telling us that many don't want and don't have what they need because they don't ask. When you ask, in verse 3, do not, uh, do not, uh, you do not uh, receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend it on your own pleasures. God will provide our needs and even our wants sometimes. But when we go to him, we have to ask for the right, in the right mind, the right motive. There is this prosperity gospel that's out there, and this is where it lose, loses its credibility. God never says, I will give you all your desires so you can spend it on yourself. But that's what prosperity gospel preaches. That if you, if you ask for God, God will give it to you. And that is not of God. Now, God will bless you with material things, as any loving father will do for their child if they can provide that. But God does it to glorify him and not ourselves. Galatians 5, God is contrasting the wisdom of God with the wisdom of the world. And it's really manifested in the way we live. And he says in Galatians 5, 16, so I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do whatever you want. There is a war going on inside of us. It's a war for dominance. The nature of Christ and the nature of this world both want control. So this is the internal fight. God doesn't want our flesh to win. The more flesh you have in your life, the further away we get from God. James finishes his thought with this next passage. He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God or against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do, you, or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why the Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. What he's talking about here is spiritual unfaithfulness. In a Jewish way of thinking, he's presenting himself, James is presenting himself as an Old Testament prophet. And during different uh, times in the Jewish history, uh, the people of, of God walked away from God, and God called them adulterers. God says, you're cheating on me. And God used the prophets to, to speak into their lives. The Old Testament is full of, of prophets who, who call the people of God back to him. 
So what does friendship with this world look like? When you were a kid back in high school, think about your friends. Did you dress like your friends? And we, we could pull out some great 80s pictures. Did you act like your friends? Did you think like your friends? Did you talk like your friends? I think we all know the answer for the most part, yes. So, friends of this world, do you act like this world? Do you look exactly like this world? Do you say the things that everybody else in this world are saying? Do you talk like this world? Would the world look at you any different than it looks to others? Where do you put your money? Where do you put your time? Where do you put your energy? Where do you put your mind? Do you put them on the things of God or the things of this world? If it's only the things of this world, then you, the Word of God says, not Alan, the Word of God says you're an enemy of God. Do you really want to be an enemy of God? If not, then start putting your life in the hands of the Holy Spirit, and day by day, slowly things start to turn toward God. Now, why do I say day by day? Because most of us couldn't handle an abrupt turn. I was out riding with my son, and he's got this little scooter thing that he rides, and it's, it's got battery-powered, okay? So he does it with his thumb. It can go about 10 miles per hour. The only problem is, and it scares my wife half to death, the front wheel is about that big. And I keep warning him, don't make sharp turns in that thing. What happens if he makes a sharp turn with that thing? He goes flying, right? Most of us can't handle that abrupt turn away from this world to God. I mean, if you can handle it, then turn it. If you're away from God, turn it. That's what you need to do. But, but we have to slowly make that turn as we turn back toward God. And one thing after another, start handing over to God. It's, I don't want to say it's easier that way, but, but that's the way that many of us have to do it. See, because our God is a jealous God. Don't forget that. He is a God that will chase us down when we go away from him, and he will cause trouble in our life on purpose uh, to see if we will come back to him. He will allow us to be miserable until we do. He will allow us to go to the ways of this world. But because he loves us, he chases after us. So I say come back sooner than later, right? Because that's what gives you peace. Amen? Amen. Well, why don't you stand as the worship team comes and they will lead us out in a last song. Let's pray as they come. Lord, this world seems to have taken over in so many different aspects. And we understand that that'll happen, Lord. You've written it down in your word. I pray that as we live in this world that we are not of this world, that we are of the things of you. I pray for those that have walked away from God that need to turn back, from, uh, turn back to you, that, that your grace will just be upon them. Allow them the opportunity to come back. We know you give that, that allowance to us, Lord, but we need to fill it sometimes. We thank you for not rejecting us. 
Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you. And may, you, may he bless you as we live our lives for him every day. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.